0: Welcome to a special edition of the Healing Health Podcast. I'm Kate Morrissey from Deakin University's Institute for Health Transformation. Today, I'm joined by a person who's become very familiar to us all during the COVID-19 pandemic, Professor Catherine Benish. Apart from being in hot demand from the media, Catherine is a leading researcher and teacher in public health here at the Institute. She has a specific interest in infectious disease, epidemiology, and community transmission which is why she is so strongly placed to contribute to the current conversation about the management of COVID-19 in this country. Today, we'll be talking about her experiences and perspectives on the pandemic and exploring what our responses to COVID-19 reveal about our health systems. Join us now in the conversation. Lovely to see you, Catherine. Thanks for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us today. I'm sure you'll agree the last 18 months have been an extraordinary time for health in this country during the pandemic. Just when we thought we might be getting back to some level of normality, we find the Delta variant now on our shores. Is the end in sight?
1: Great question, Kate. (laughs) It's a question on everyone's lips. It is a changing challenge. And I think you're absolutely right, you know, where we've built some experience, we knew we were going to keep having outbreaks, we just didn't know the outbreaks would get harder and harder to manage with this shift in the variants. We knew it could happen, but it's different, the reality when you deal with it. What we've seen in this middle part of the year is both two things, important things. One is the emergence of a plan. So that that early phase four plan that, that we've had laid out is a really important development that takes us from trying to hold where we are for as long as we possibly can to reminding us what this is all about which is about building our resilience and our protection to the virus in the community with vaccine and and trying to keep ourselves safe as we can till we get to that point what we're dealing with now I guess is the reality that we don't have all the time in the world to do that and the change in the virus, really pushes the agenda. You know, it means you've got to work mm. so hard to build on resilience while whilst we're still trying to manage our international border and keep the virus at bay. So those two things actually might work together in, in, in a way to help, I guess, Australia realise that, that we are as vulnerable as we are and unlike other places in the world that have gone through some pretty terrible waves and, mm. and that's motivated vaccination we we not only don't quite have that motivation level, but we also don't even have the natural resistance in the community from having large waves of infection. So we are vulnerable and I think we just need to work on that as quickly as we possibly can because it's going to get harder and harder mm-hmm. to hold the borders. Only, you know, the, a couple of weeks ago I started saying that the Delta variant, the one that's challenging us across the globe now with that being the dominant strain, it really does sort of spark the beginning of the end of COVID-0. That's, that's you know, was, wasn't our aim initially. It started to become a bit of a focus and there are some people out there who thought we could keep COVID-0 forever and Australia didn't have to worry about all the other things. But Delta tells us that, you know, while we never thought it was really sustainable, certainly not the epidemiologists, mm. um... The politicians started to believe it was for a while there, I think. I think that the realities come back, you know, into that conversation and, and we know that's really a holding, short-term holding pattern to try and just give us that precious time to, to make ourselves safer.
0: What do you think we actually have done really well in this country throughout the pandemic? Well, I
1: do think that strive to really suppress, suppress transmission, um, was, was the right thing to do in 2020. We didn't know then whether we could even develop vaccines. So it, it was important to buy time to understand what our response to the virus could be and should be, um, whether we could, you know, even fully understand the impact of the disease at that point. We, we had to really, unfortunately, watch what was happening in those countries where they didn't put those early controls in place to fully understand the impact. And some of the early modelling Criticised at the time because it was kind of worst case scenario, assuming we did nothing, but did show you know what it could do even even to countries like Australia, and sadly we saw that play out in places overseas where hospitals were overwhelmed. Mm. So that was that learning time was really um, an important time to try and battle the virus as much as we could, so that we, um, in our very vulnerable state, um, could could at least. Then see what our strategy should be, and start to put those in place. So I think that was done really well. we We probably didn't get off to such a good start communication wise in the very early days, but pretty quickly we did close our international border, we formed the national cabinet, which brought the states together with the federal government. and and over those first important couple of months, there was a much more coherent, um, consistent message across the country, which I think was really important. That that was this was our aim. We were mm. going to bend the curve. Of, if we had outbreaks, we were going to suppress transmission, and do that aggressively. So, so I think that was the right way to start. And Australia, with very few other countries in the world, um, you know, uh, sister country New Zealand uh, did very well, and countries in Asia who'd learnt from SARS. But we're actually, you know, very few countries succeeded in doing what we did.
0: Mm. And on the flip side, um, what do you think we could have done better during the pandemic?
1: Well, I think it's how we used that time. I think we did lose sight in a way of why we were trying to keep the virus at bay, why we closed our international borders. We knew that that was an incredibly risky thing to do, but the rest of the world was in effect closing their borders for a lot of that time too, because the virus was in and spreading. And so they would either not travel to countries where there was a lot of virus or those countries would close their borders. So there was a lot of disruption around the world and we had that similar level of disruption, but we could live from time to time, depending on which state you're in, a relatively normal life. So the the challenge with that then was people understanding the true risk and remembering why we, we'd created this artificial holding <laughs> world, um, which was really about vaccination and in the meantime, there's been so much conversation in the space. Before we had good national campaigns about vaccination and what it could achieve, we've we've kind of lost our way in some of that conversation. So we've um, anti-vaxxers will always find a, a way to come in early in a conversation. Mm. But there's a lot of people out there that are just reading information. Some of it looks genuine from around the world and they're trying to make sense of it. And you really need to respond to that in a very consistent and considered way and have a trusted source of information. And I think that hasn't been there and it's left us open Mm. to this much, you know, broader and and frustrating because it's making people anxious discussion around vaccines, either um, really struggling to come to terms with risk associated with vaccination. We're analysing this in ways we never have before, you know, but people still find it very difficult to process this information. Incredibly rare risk, but a serious risk. And so trying to make that make sense to you, not just in terms of frequency but in terms of possible outcomes, weighing that up against the benefits you get from vaccination, which aren't just at individual but also at population level, it's a very hard thing for people to get their heads around. Mm. And I think other countries have done a lot better than us, mm. so you know, in in the UK, they rolled the vaccine out, like a lot of other countries who had the full force of a wave in in motion, went to mass vaccinations. People were vaccinated, you know, in droves. People wanted to be vaccinated. They knew what mm. they were being protected from. In Australia, it was more of an abstract idea, but the other thing was um, the messaging around it too, and. Um, I've just been I was having a conversation just today about some of that messaging. And, and you know, it is that sense that if you can show what vaccines prevent you from dealing with, it, it helps people understand the true benefit and that's what they're weighing up. And in the Public Health England regular surveillance data, they're always updating how many hospitalisations have been prevented, how many lives have been saved. And I think, you know, we've put our focus on you model to see what level you might get to get not even herd immunity, because we're not aspiring to that, a very kind of confused way about thinking sometimes around the benefits in Australia versus something as blatant as how many deaths have been prevented. So the communications and the coordination across the country. And then with that, you get the politics coming in and enveloping the science and, and the conversation. And I think that's that's actually made what was perhaps our weakness a greater weakness and that's mm. that's disappointing because we can't afford that you know we've got to be looking at any outbreak in Australia as an Australian problem and and it hasn't been the way we've we've dealt with that as we've mm. found these you know state-to-state outbreaks
0: in terms of the huge amount of misinformation that's been floating around and as you say you know it the information can you look very authoritative and genuine what role have you tried to play in terms of educating the public and helping people navigate through the vast amount of information out there
1: it's exactly that it's actually helping people understand the numbers numbers are misleadingly simple and and we saw that even in uh, the second wave in victoria in 2020 you know we we had better testing during the second wave than we'd had at the start. So numbers did give you a a picture of what was happening in the community, but a very biased picture. It's the people who are tested. It's the people you hear about. And likewise, we started to see a lot more reporting coming from the government and the health department, particularly when there were concerns over our public health response. So we'd start to hear about, you know, cases according to whether they're still under investigation or not. But people didn't actually understand the contact tracing process and so they would look at the numbers of cases there and just use that to say it's not working mm-hmm. or and so they would look at case numbers and and process indicators and make assumptions about what they were telling them so the role of the epidemiologist particularly a field epidemiologist you know if you've worked in outbreak control i think it gives you a different perspective on things i was lucky enough to have a background that did include Outbreak control, working on infectious disease rosters. I worked with New South Wales Health on the Olympic Games um, in terms of prevention, but also had worked for years in education. Um, So working as a, a teacher in the university system around some of those fundamental skills, you you get a good feeling for what people struggle with conceptually and how how you can try and break that down for people and communicate. So that and my research, which is about community transmission of infectious diseases, all kind of came together in a in a mix that I think did make it quite clear early on that the media had a, a real interest in bringing that commentary into the public space because they found it helpful themselves. I spent a lot of my time helping the reporters understand outbreak dynamics and what the numbers mean, and then that translates to the kinds of questions they ask and how we put that together whether it's, you know, my quotes in a story they're writing or a, a, an opinion piece I'm writing. And I just think we're still doing that. You know, it's the same with vaccinations. And if I can give mm. one example, um, people, and again, these aren't anti-vaxxers in the traditional sense of oppose any vaccination, but smart people who are now going out and looking at numbers themselves because they, they're wanting to have to go to the source, not to trust that they're seeing all the information or trust the people they're getting the information from. And with this Public Health England data coming out, they've now seen enough virus circulating with Delta after the um, vaccination rates got to quite a high level to be reporting things like deaths according to vaccination status. So people have gone in and looked at those data and then they come back, because I run a discussion, you know, every day on on LinkedIn about this, Um, but they, they look at the numbers and say, but, well, it's shocking. Vaccination isn't working. We've actually got as many deaths in the fully vaccinated as we have in the unvaccinated population. So what's going on there? And and the reality is vaccination is incredibly tied to your age because we've rolled out, everywhere in the world's rolled out vaccinations from the most at risk down. So your highest vaccination coverage is in the people at the greatest risk of dying of COVID. So the reality is if you looked at the demographic profile of your unvaccinated, they're mainly now people in their 20s and 30s, if you look at the profile in the vaccinated, fully vaccinated, they're people mm-hmm. who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, the reality is if we've brought the death rates to the same level that's a fantastic outcome <laughs> because that's where we started with all of this. It was oh. the people in older age groups, and it goes up incrementally, it doesn't just magically start at 70 or whatever, um, that are that are at risk of dying of COVID and, and it shows the vaccine's working. And yet people use those numbers because they don't understand epidemiology, they don't understand how to break the numbers down and everything those numbers represent. So epidemiology is about a very framework way of thinking that allows you to go through and in, and interrogate numbers and see what's driving those numbers, and then understand what you can appropriately interpret from those numbers. And too many people now are armchair epidemiologists or you know number crunchers, and and it's and including people who are from health backgrounds. It's you know it's actually a skill set that we build up over many years. But unfortunately, people take shortcuts and and then things like that become viral because it gets reported by someone who's just looked at the numbers and didn't get it but speaks with authority who might be a, a physician. Um, and then it, it just gets picked up and people throw it around out there. Mm. So how you get a consistent message out and how you put it out in a way that allows other people to share that, you know, to be informed themselves or to pass your message on, is is critical, and so mainstream media very important for reach, um, but also places like LinkedIn, where you know, there's a lot of really thoughtful people, and and they want to come in and understand it and 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 share it. But equally, you can be censored by the people who flood you with the uh, the anti-vaccination messages and a very strong stance, no evidence behind it usually, um, or a misreading of the evidence that's out there. But uh, you know that's that's what you've got to struggle with. So it's hard to be an epidemiologist in this space, mm-hmm. but I actually think, you know, they have they have been across the board. So many of us working in so many different parts of, of the uh, analysis and communications that that's, that's been, yeah, a really important contribution around just working with data safely.
0: Catherine, in addition to the role you've played in terms of educating the public, um, what role have you played in educating the government and what insights can you share with us about influencing government policy?
1: Very good question. It's been an interesting time. You know, I I guess you'd you'd think as a a public health researcher that it would be a time where everyone would be just banded together and, and working together. It hasn't actually worked quite that way. There's been a quite a closed-door approach around some governments. Um, there's been opportunity to input and we've seen some of our best modellers, for example, you know, working with the Australian government initially and then we've used modelling throughout to try and really map that that policy path. But there have been other areas where, um, you know, there's there's been obvious ways that the health Community, particularly the academic health community, with a lot of trained researchers or great students, you know, um, late in their degrees who could have come in. And some of that was picked up, but often there was a bit of a lag in realizing that actually contact traces, masters of public health students, or, you know, or, or using those resources well. So I just think it's interesting that sometimes in a crisis, we don't always have mechanisms in place that allow us to really work well across agencies. So I know, you know, volunteers, that takes a lot of work. You've got to vet people, you've got to train people sometimes. But at the end of the day, there's that's something I think we've learned is that, you know, we could have in fact garnered more input earlier and really, you know, worked together. I do think even with that, there's still a space for independent analysis and commentary because... While we have heard a lot that expression, you know, we we're led by the science or we listen to the science. Um, there's many things that happen in that space that translate what might have been an observation or a recommendation to what actually translates to uh, public health settings or policy at the end of the day. And I do think um, there are people who are so in the thick of it, and that's pretty much the definition of any state we're in the midst of an outbreak your your attention focuses completely on the immediate. And it's harder to kind of lift your head in those times and say, well, what is the evidence around this now that the situation's changed and we're contemplating going to more serious measures? So there's some capacity for that in the department and that certainly fed into it, but not nearly the capacity that was there if we'd been able to tap in across states. And, you know, so I think one of the, the lessons here is something that many people have been asking for 30 years now, is an independent body that brings together the expertise, that has a way of doing that, both virtually and, and in reality, that supports government at all levels in its public health response. So in a way, some of the commentary was really trying to piece some of that together um, in, in, in a way that could then support the government. But it was also about challenging some of the decisions and That's a fine line because as public health practitioners, you don't want to undermine the messaging and and the interventions. But equally, these things can't be completely unquestioned when they're going on for a long time. And there's commentary from the governments about the evidence base, but that's not being presented. And so we wound up being in an unenviable position where you would have the media coming to us and saying, well, they've said there's evidence behind this. What evidence is there? curfews was probably one of the main ones, that um, curfews in, can work. And there was no evidence that any of us could find. And, and you know, it's not to say it might not work, but there wasn't even evidence from the nature of transmission in the lead-up to that that was being presented by the government to explain why they were going this path. So you a- ended up not being able to defend some of the decisions some people did. Some people had very strong views, even amongst the experts. That actually didn't necessarily help in terms of influencing government policy either, because some people just thought extreme lockdown has to work. And I think anyone would argue that's true. But actually, to get the balance right and to have something that's that's minimal impact in a negative way in other areas, whilst doing the job you needed to do in public health terms, is something that if you don't have good evidence at the start, you've got to build as you go. And so a lot of us were trying to look at the evidence at that local outbreak, not just broad broad principles saying that, you know, if everything else fails, use blanket lockdowns, for example. So I think then when you had disagreement amongst experts in the public space, because we were actually talking about slightly different things, um, not broad principles or opinions, but, you know, some of us were actually focused on the story on the ground, that that then almost gave agency to governments to ignore the expert advice, you know, because there's a lot of different opinions out there and we're just doing what we're doing. We did see some important shifts, though. Part of that was around one of the areas where, as I highlighted earlier, I don't think we did well and we're still struggling a bit with, but the public health messaging. And there was, even when we were trying to keep the the public on board in Victoria during a long lock lockdown, the emphasis was very much on We have to do all of this or we will have another wave. You know, we have to do this or our hospitals will be overwhelmed. And, you know, the best practice in public health is actually about telling people what they can do in a constructive way. So you you have respect for the virus, but you're not building it out of fear. It's actually saying these things work and you should have the confidence to do that. So, in fact... And, you know, and I've had this conversation with chief health officers, you know, we should be saying, wear your mask so we don't have another wave, you know, mm. and 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 that's like, that's very basic, switching the language. And we did get there at the end of the second wave, likewise showing confidence in our public health response, you know, and I can understand when you're in the thick of an outbreak, again, you're really worried about everything that you don't fully understand or that looks like it's going to challenge what you're trying to achieve. But you actually have built an incredible system across all our states. We've really lifted in our public health capacity. So you need to speak to those strengths because then you want people to engage in the public health system and you want them to believe that together, community and public health can can bring this to an end. And I think that's, again, something that, you know, you really need to have working well. And so we did see shifts there. Most importantly, I I championed uh, going to contacts of contacts. This was something that I could see. We were just never getting in front of the virus in the second wave. When it did come back into the community from a workplace, we'd see another cluster. We're always that bit behind. So I'd been promoting this and doing it in a way that wasn't just about saying we should do this, but explaining why it works. And in that case, it meant if you got to someone who had been exposed only to discover that they were already infectious by the time their test result came back. The, the idea that you, as soon as you found them, you'd ask them and all their immediate contacts to isolate at the same time until that first test result was back meant that even if they were positive, you had that next ring of potential cases before they are infectious. That's what this is all about. But equally from a government point of view, it meant those Doing the outbreak control work, could actually tell when a cluster had finished because they would have a ring of close contacts, all of who were negative, and the chance of that point with those variants of having a another co- more casual contact infected were extremely low. So it gave them the confidence to say we've got this contained, and it could prevent us needing to go into lockdown or get us out of lockdown if we'd use that as a control measure. And that's something that has been used in other outbreaks since. But it did take months of lobbying. And, uh, you know, and I, and I was acknowledged by people within the department for my role in that. But it's not, again, something that was that was kind of a public thing. It's just just a sort of a shift to it. And I do think, you know, those things are good examples where science, you know, in independent science is working with health departments. There could have been good news stories, but in fact, kind of slipped through. And with that, it's less likely to influence other states. People just see it as another state difference rather than, well, that's good advice actually when you listen to it and when we did it, it worked. You know, then you're more likely to see it picked up earlier by other states. Testing every hotel worker every day. That was my recommendation after we had the outbreak in Adelaide um, that did get into the community from hotel quarantine. Um, Victoria picked that up very quickly and... Um, the other states didn't until they each had their own problem of, of an infected worker being in the community for days. So I don't understand that, you know, why we're not using that uh, Australian Health Principal uh, Protection Committee to, to really say, well, we've had to lift our minimum standards now. We've learned here and this works. So I think, again, it's sort of a mix of how you influence policy and how you also get that lifting the national minimum standards so that the country benefits.
0: Thanks. And thanks for um, being so influential in that space. Hopefully that made a big impact and um, reduced the length of our lockdown. So thank you. Um, As you say, you know, public health has really enjoyed um, a bit of a time in the limelight. Um, So once the pandemic passes, fingers crossed it will, and we will get to some level of normality again. Um, What do you see as the key areas for public health um, investment?
1: Well, I think one of the legacies actually will hopefully be that everyone's a bit more cognizant of, you know, hygiene, distancing and all those things. And I like to see masks have a place, you know, um, in our futures, through winter, indoors, you know. I I think people will be wearing masks to grocery stores because they've enjoyed a couple of seasons without having a head cold, which is actually, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the, the silver linings to all of this. We've learned that we'd um stripped away resources, particularly in public health. we've We've invested at different times in prevention, um, but we we did some of our primary responses in public health really have been underfunded over a period of time, and that means you lose capacity. So one of the most important things is we take advantage of the capacity we're building. I know at Deakin we've got people who've come into these new roles being developed in um, government departments and they're now coming back to university to do more training in public health, which is brilliant because you'll build up a a group of people with experience and formal training that hopefully will have, you know, well-funded places in in our public health going ahead because you just can't build these things in a crisis. You have to have that there and, and it's more likely to give you a stronger prevention position And that's ideally where you spend your public health money in prevention. But equally, you can then turn that into a response if you need to when you're confronted by these new threats. I think the other area that's really been highlighted through all this that needs attention is governance. So I I alluded earlier to the idea of having a national centre to coordinate the information that comes in from other countries, that goes out to other countries, that feeds into the states. It has to be independent of government. It's got to be something where you can separate out a whole lot of factors. But at the same time, I don't believe you should just be looking at health in its own right. I think the other mm-hmm. area of investment is what, um, what a lot of us have been talking about for a very long time and I think, you know, very good examples at Deakin actually of system science in health so that when you look at a response, you, you consider all the other um, equal and opposite reactions you might get when you have an intervention you put in place, but to consider the bigger picture. And there are always multiple ways you can deal with a threat, but some of them will give you what you want in terms of the health outcome, but manage other things in a different kind of way. And I I don't think we had any capacity to do that as we were going and the the decision made by most governments was health first, economy later. But of course, health and economy are intrinsically tied and we've seen a lot of that conversation then about, you know, the stress of losing your job or watching your business built up over years, precariously hanging in, you know, hanging in there. Um, all those things along with mental health issues, domestic violence and other things you've got to manage in extreme um, restrictions, you know, has taught us a lot about our our readiness to be able to have that really informed think tank approach when things like this happen so that you're not just saying, well, we'll do this and and we're aware that could happen but we have to focus on this, that you've actually got something you can plug into. So to me that national capacity to be bring that expertise from across the country and give you a safe think tank environment to try to develop and even try out in a, in, a, in a modelling sense various options so you can get that information to those that have to enact, you know, those that have to make the decisions and and put the public health response in place can do with better information coming in. And at the same time, building evaluation into all those interventions so I was asked um, to present evidence to the uh, UK or party parliamentary hearing when they were looking at coming out of their lockdown um, late in 2020 and still um, <laughs> right through to the middle uh, of, of 2021. And they, they wanted to know, you know, what, what worked in, in lockdown. And we don't have that information. And there's a sense that, you know, if you put a particular package of lockdown in, you can't evaluate it. But that's actually not true. You can look at the shifts in um, the various transmission uh, patterns that you see before and after. You know where the weak points are in a lockdown because you still see transmission occurring. So you can figure out what works and what doesn't work mm. and and you should be finessing it. But for us in Australia, we we kind of ramped it up rather than finessing it. New Zealand went the other way. They started much tougher than us, also got to... Covid zero, we all eliminated virus in all our states in Australia and as as well New Zealand. But as time went on, they became more nuanced. They actually had more focused local lockdowns. Um, every state in in Australia and territory has approached it differently. So we've had people who've um, had people had had states where uh, you know with a very small trigger they've gone into a three or five day lockdown. Um, they might do that at a city level, another state might do it statewide and you can't understand the difference. And that to me is just a marker that you don't have good science to be confident Mm. or to do the same consistent thing each time. Each state has a slightly different risk profile, but a lot more of it seems to be risk tolerance than actual risk that, that, that determines these differences. And risk tolerance comes back to trusting the information that sits behind the recommendations or what they've seen uh, done in other settings. So I do think there's a lot more we can do in that space. And there's a thousand years of research to be done on the detailed data, the incredible data collected. Now, New South Wales and Victoria going to contacts of contacts, that allows you to run a whole lot of what if scenarios for these circuit breaker lockdowns or these short incursions into the community or larger outbreaks, because you're actually looking at beyond the initial spread, you can actually see where what, what causes it to die, what happens in that space. So that's incredibly important that, coming back to your question, that we're using that to shape our future responses, but we're also going to invest in turning those data into data that can be analysed in that way, that can take a bit of work, um, and that we then invest in the research we need to do so we fully understand where we've been, without fear or favour. This isn't mm. blaming, this mm. is saying, you know, we didn't have that evidence, this is what we did um, and we kept doing the same because we weren't looking at that evidence as we went. So that's not the error. The error is if we never get to it, if we never do that evaluation work and and I think that's that's the gift of future generations is is learning as much as we can out of what we've been through.
0: Sure. And how likely do you think it will be that we um, get a national think tank independent
1: it's hard to see, you know, um, certain senior uh, politicians, in fact our health minister, um, Greg Hunt, was of the view at the time when some of these conversations came up again that, you know, we were the only OECD country without a CDC equivalent and we were doing better than all the rest. And so it, hard, it became hard to, you know, have an argument because we'd gone for this this kind of strict um, lockdown approach nationwide and that did work mm. initially. But I think he, like everyone else, is aware of actually the work you need to do while you're doing these responses. That, that in fact is very difficult if you're in the action room, you're in the war room in a health department, and what other supports are needed. So I'm hoping that you know there's a the lesson from this is what that could have brought, and and what it can still bring now as mm-hmm. we unpack, evaluate, and learn from where we've been, and and I'd like to be world leaders in that space, and I I think having something that is, uh, again, independent from government but brings together the expertise from across government and universities and private institutions um, and our wise retired dons. I've heard from a lot of people who are great thinkers in this space and they don't have a formal way to engage mm. either. And I just think, you know, that would be a great legacy for a health minister, wouldn't it, to pull that together to say that this is the turning point and... Um, Australia, which went from being, I, you know, I think everyone would agree, one of the envies of the world, now people less certain <laughs> about what mm. Australia is doing and mm. why, could in fact re-establish itself, you know, as one of the leaders in this space if we, if we really work together to analyse where we've been and what we can take from that into the future. Explore the state of our healthcare systems with Australia's leading researchers in the Healing Health podcast. Join us in conversation on the challenges facing healthcare and what work is being done locally to transform
0: the delivery of prevention and care globally. So, listen on your favourite podcast streaming service or visit iht.deacon.edu.au
1: forward slash podcasts.
0: Catherine, as an institute, we're very interested in the social determinants of health and I think through the pandemic, the link between economic outcomes and socioeconomic status and health outcomes has been really laid bare. Um, what can we learn from this? Oh, that's that's such
1: a big question. Yeah, um and I and I think that's one of the things we absolutely have to look at uh, in the data we have already, even to fully understand what the impacts are. Um Eugene Athan and his group uh, at at Bowen Health and and some of us across the institute have worked to look at that in in second wave data from the region because we know that people from low SES groups are overrepresented amongst cases, but it's actually incredibly complicated. I mean, it was mm-hmm. one of the things that that I felt most um, frustrated by, in in a, in a really personal way. I think was was the way people um referred to the northwestern suburbs as the belt in the second wave, a Victoria that saw most cases. And and there was a lot of blaming and shaming. And and we've seen the same happen in Sydney with, you know, um the winter outbreak of yes. focusing now in the Southwest, started in, in eastern suburbs, moves to the southwest, and then and then the conversation changes about, you know, the people and their responsibility and not or helping or whatever. And the reality is, from a basic epidemiological point of view, that um, you combine a whole lot of factors, which can include language difficulties and cultural differences and perceptions and trust in governments and a whole range of things that influence how well messaging works and how relevant the messaging is to a local community, right through to the fundamentals of how many people live in a house and how households interact and importantly, in one of the areas um, I've done a bit of work on, I, I contributed to a parliamentary inquiry we've written a piece for an international evidence-based policy um, article on the casual workers, the people in the insecure work. And I was, you know, I remember physically applauding when um, the Victorian government first announced in the second wave that we were putting those measures in place that actually acknowledged the casual workers and would give people something equivalent to lost pay if they had to test at all and, and isolate, particularly a day or two back then when it took a while. But but more so for people that had to fully quarantine. But then as I thought about it, you know, you realize that if someone doesn't work for two weeks, they've got the money in their pocket, but they may not have the job to go back to, because a lot of the casual work were in the areas where there was high demand. You know, you couldn't say, we don't need a cleaner for two weeks. We're actually stepping up that work. And so there were new jobs created. They're often high risk jobs. There were new jobs created in hotel quarantine. And we know early on, they weren't well trained. They were vulnerable in those jobs. And we didn't actually look after our casual workers in their jobs. The fact that they had multiple jobs meant they had multiple exposure sites. So if they worked across, you know, five different facilities in a week doing the cleaning. They had five different opportunities to contract the virus and then take it home. And they were more likely to live with a number of other people, including other people in other casual work. So they would take it back to multiple workplaces as well. And that's how you get that that dynamic. So they're a group in our population that are overrepresented in our lower SES areas, overrepresented amongst our culturally and linguistically diverse population they were the people most hurt by the COVID outbreak and and they were the people that, you know, time and time again when we had waves were had to go the hard yards to, to pull something back in that was foisted upon them. You know, this is mm. nothing anybody deserves but it's harder work to close it down in those settings and yet and yet they did. So I just think they're amongst the heroes in all of this but it, it took a long time for people to realise that our communications weren't working generally, mm. let alone to those parts of the community where it mattered most. In Victoria, that really seeded the push then um, for a more localised public health response. And so we have our regional and inner Melbourne public health units have emerged from this, incredibly important, so that they can establish links in community, another area of investment going ahead. So that you know when you do have a, an issue develop of any kind of public health issue, that you can actually immediately go to those well-established relationships with community leaders, faith leaders and others to really know exactly how you need to work with community to to resolve this issue. So I I think there's that, but at a global level, even with vaccines, dealing with the inequity that comes with having the money in the pocket or the power of negotiation with pharmaceutical companies, WHO, and the whole um, group through COVAX and other initiatives trying to ensure that the vaccine gets out to the world. As an epidemiologist, you can't vaccinate your own backyard and think you're okay. It has to be a global response. If we don't contain the virus globally, all you do is create other variants that undermines anything you've achieved as as a country that could afford to vaccinate its population quickly. So, you know, there's so many areas of equity and inequity. Again, I think it; these are those cracks in our in our thinking about public health, as well as our public health response to um, that that really need to be addressed.
0: Great, Catherine. That brings us to the end of our discussion today. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to um, share with us any other thoughts or perspectives that haven't been brought out by our discussion and perhaps aren't um, part of the public uh, discussions and debates that are going on?
1: I think I think one of the key areas is how well the Federation is working or isn't working in this setting. We in health are aware of it a lot, you know, um, with the difference in management of hotels when you move, hotels, uh, hospitals, <laughs> when you move between, um, you know, federal and state politics, how you manage even training of our medical practitioners. You know, there's so much going on in that space. And I just think, you know, while I've stayed away from talking about politics, I, I I, always just talk about the epidemiology and I refuse to answer questions about policy other than if I'm being asked a specific evidence question, you know, related to um, that policy. But at the same time, I think that's been a real struggle for us. and I, And I do think, as I said earlier, States working together is so critical at these times, and and yet you you see more fracturing sometimes, um, and more more um, I call it weaponising of epidemiology. You know where facts can be pulled out, but they're used to support your case and push someone else's approach aside, and and it's it plays out in a different kind of way, and it it it, it damages you know. How epidemiology itself is seen in these settings, if in fact it's it's being kind of used rather than actually listened to, and 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 a, a kind of a cornerstone to what we're doing and 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 what we're learning about, you know, how we move on from here. But I also think you know that's played out at very different levels. It's been divisive, you know. We've seen the divide between rural and uh, remote versus the big cities. We've uh, we saw that in Victoria with the Ring of Steel, but you know being repeated by a Premier that, you know, people from the regions don't want people from Melbourne there, they'll bring the virus at a time where the risk of having the virus in Melbourne was less than one in a million. And so a lot of overstatement of risk, trying to manage people and manage behaviour, but doing it in a way that really fostered a very divisive view and, and split communities. And then you had naturally cohesive communities like border communities split by state borders being hard-closed. And so we've had a whole lot of things that have really increased divisiveness. But I still think the hardest one is the one that really pushed people into either fully supporting something like a lockdown to the people who thought it was complete overkill and unnecessary and a lot of confused people in the middle with the messaging that was going on. Um, early on in particular, there was a lot of talk about the virus that then would temper down. You know, this variance faster than the other variant. Okay, it's not. You know, <laughs> but but you know, at the time it looks like that because that's what the outbreak responders are dealing with and they always see the quick transmission first because it happens quickly. They they sort of lose track of the people that don't actually develop their infection for a full week and a half because they've had to deal with that immediacy. But they're communicating it to the public in a way that ramps up the the fear in the community who's saying lockdown at any cost. And then actually makes the people who say lockdown's overkill even more angry because they see that as as overstating the problem in order to justify lockdown. So we did have a lot of confused people in the middle. Some of them gravitated to one side or the other because they felt they had to be somewhere. Um, But a lot of that middle conversation, which was where it really had to happen, the truth always sits in the middle and it's actually pulling people in from both sides. And I would argue, Course, as an epidemiologist, that that the science around what works should have been central to that conversation. Instead, I'd be down the middle talking science. Sometimes it, um, it was actually addressing some of the, the wrong messaging coming out of the group saying, you know, master ridiculous or whatever. Um, or sometimes saying, well, actually, maybe now we don't have to wear them outdoors. That might keep people wearing them longer. You could say the same message, and I could be slammed as the media like to say, slammed by both sides. Not people saying, hmm, what does that science evidence say today? And how do I take that back to my narrative? Or how do I join that conversation in the middle to see whether we can shift our thinking? There was very little of that. It was either you were, you know, held up as a the person who was leading the charge on masse, good or bad, you know. And so it, it, it that to me was what we lost in all of this, the ability to come together and really solve the problem together and move with the changing evidence together. It became political even at that level. Oh. I was, you know, famously called a dictator Dan mouthpiece at <laughs> one point. Um, and then someone the next week, you know, offered to to send me a tin hat because I was just so, you know, in denial about things or ridiculous thinking that, you know, the virus was this bad. And so, you know... I think I think you lose a lot if you can't have those conversations and I stuck to them and and had a a following of people who would write to me literally every day from all walks of life you know vice chancellors through to 11-year-old kids stuck out on a farm at the edge of melbourne you know but inside the ring of steel helping me understand how this appeared to people how they experienced it and 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 how the messaging was translating to people and so You know, I thank all of those people because this wasn't just my voice, you know, that I tried to stay with the data, but I was also learning from these people that took the time to share their analysis or share their thinking or ask me questions that then told me what what we needed to be thinking about in terms of comms, trying to get out, you know, another opinion piece or whatever that would help unpack some of those questions. But at the end of the day, we've got more questions than answers, but as an academic, that's a great thing. <laughs> you know, we've got a lot of work to do and a lot of future generations of researchers who are really going to, you know, help us make sense of this and and uh, and be the better for
0: it. Thank you and thanks for our chat today. And um, perhaps just in finishing, I'll share with the audience your huge uh, media reach over the last 18 months, which um, at last count was 690 million domestically and 1.2 billion Uh, internationally. So very well done on achieving such great reach um, across the world. And thank you so much for being a great ambassador for the Institute for Health Transformation and Deakin University. And um, yeah, good luck for the next six months. I'm sure you'll continue to appear on our TV screens.
1: Thank you, Kate. And thank you. Really good questions. That's been a good conversation. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thanks for joining the conversation about our health systems and COVID-19. For more information on any of the topics or researches in this series, simply head to iht.deakin.edu.au.